episode 6 of Crew Shaken, a Warhammer 40,000 tabletop wargaming podcast recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in the United States. I'm your host, Tim. Thank you for joining me. Tonight's episode takes a look at both deployment and the moving phase of the new Warhammer 40,000 8th edition, and we discuss Karn the Betrayer an interesting character that's been in the Warhammer 40,000 fluff for a long time, and will stick around for a long time to come, given his status as a champion of corn. Joining me here for episode six, returning to the basement workshop studio, is Ian. Ian, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me again, Tim. Ian, hobby progress. What's the latest and greatest in your Warhammer 40k hobby progress. Well, these days I'm uh, doubling down on my guard again. Uh, Very much getting back into them. Uh, Very excited by 8th edition, and so I am building the Steel Legion army that I've always wanted. Uh, And uh, one of my showpieces for that is going to be the Basilisk, which, of course, being Steel Legion, will have an enclosed crew compartment. And so I've been uh, working off a lot of pictures of uh, uh, Russian BTRs, which is a, their APC, which the Chimera is very heavily based on, and yeah. also uh, uh, the American Paladin Cannon, which the Basilisk is more or less ported from. What's the story behind the Steel Legion? So they are the home regiment of uh, Armageddon, oh. which is the big, uh, the big important industrial hive world in the northeast uh, of the Soul Sector. Uh, and uh, one of the, uh, probably one of the most important narrative uh, standbys for the series, or for the uh, for the franchise for the last uh, 15 years or so, um, or more, actually. Yeah, because I think Codex Armageddon came around around 2000, and uh, they, uh, they are from that world, but they are not the PDF of that world. Mm. Uh, the... Um, uh, Armageddon itself is the number one, I think it's the number one producer of chimeras for the entire Imperium, if not the Soul Sector. Uh, and because of that, they are an entirely mechanized uh, regiment, or, or regiments. What do you mean by mechanized? So every every single model and every single soldier of the Steel Legion either rides a horse or rides in a chimera. Ah. So, or in addition to their tank... Uh, tank divisions in previous editions did they have their own special rules uh it depended on the edition um in third edition you could obviously play directly from codex armageddon that had specific rules for the steel legion in fourth edition the guard codex allowed these uh modular tweaks to the codex that allowed you to mechanize your force uh, and emulate the Steel Legion without having to play Steel Legion directly. I see. And then in 5th edition, they introduced uh, the veteran squads, the troop choice. So you could uh, fake it, mostly. You could make up a Legion that acts like the Steel Legion. Right, <laughs> right. It would be a little more elite than the Steel Legion is typically portrayed. Uh, yeah. But uh, And then in 6th uh, and 7th, again, you could take veteran squads as troops and so emulate, but uh, it got even more... Uh, murky but now dedicated transport for every uh every slot so yeah so what's your list going to look like in eighth for your steel legion it's four lehman rust battle tanks okay uh one of them being a company commander and a vanquisher then a standard lehman rust battle tank kitted uh with uh, heavy bolters then i'm going to do uh the uh, eradicator nova cannon on one that is the ignorer's cover 
uh, canon. And uh, in my games recently, I've been discovering that now that heavy flamers and flamers no longer ignore cover, you you do you do still need. Uh, you know, some kind of option for circumventing cover more than just blasting through the defense. Sure. Uh, you And uh, for facing things like scouts and camo cloaks, it's a free minus two rend on top of the existing rend. Uh, and then the fourth one is going to be my, my standby demolisher. I love... Uh, I love demolisher cannons. Uh, this is backed up by five chimeras uh, transporting... Uh, infantry squads, a veteran squad, and then a heavy weapons squad. Uh, this is a new experiment for me. Usually in the past, heavy weapons squads have been, uh, in my opinion, a little too fragile to, uh, you know, make much of a difference. But now that uh, cover is easier to parse out to various units. So because it's not as required for everybody, since it's only an additional plus one, uh, it is at less of a premium. Right. And so it's easier to get these large-based models into good cover I see. without competing with all these other units. And f- and now that templates are no longer a thing as well, you have less of an issue with clumping up in cover. Sure. So, sure. you know, before you got a flamer, right. single flamer, anywhere near a heavy weapon squad, goodbye. Yeah. And that really wasn't that challenging to do. So... You know, Heavy Weapon Squad is a bit of an experiment for me. Uh, and then they're also going to be backed up uh, by two Armored Sentinels. This is uh, a bit of a change. I used to love the Scout Sentinel. But now that uh, most of the Imperium factions have lost a lot of their uh, uh, alternative deployment methods, uh. for instance, huge fan of land speeders who can no longer deep strike. Land speeders don't deep strike anymore. Very, very strange. But uh, now that scouts no longer can outflank, scout sentinel, excuse me, can no longer outflank, I, I think the armored sentinel is going to be the better option for me. Huh. I don't want to get too far ahead of our conversation, but I know you were very critical of 7th in a number of ways. You've been playing for a long time, and you saw 7th as a change for the worse, almost, I think. Yes. Uh, in a lot of ways, it was, um, and, and, and I feel like the designers saw this as well, and I'm, I'm taking that from the difference between 8th and 7th. But 7th right. uh, became this arms race where every new codex, in order to either sell models or be exciting or whatever the intent was, but the, the power level just kept ratcheting up. Except for every once in a while, a codex would just kind of fall a little flat. Mm-hmm. Uh, you saw that with Tyranids. Uh, you saw that with the Guard Codex uh, from 6th. And uh, you'd, you'd get these armies that you know, relied on the couple of gimmicks that they could do. And if you weren't taking the gimmick, it really wasn't worth your time. And right. that, I, just, I just felt that was disappointing. Right. So I know you played a good bit of 7th, but it sounds like you're going to be trying to play a good bit more of 8th. Yes. Very excited coming into 8th. So what was it about the change to 8th that kind of reinvigorated your interest in the guard and playing more frequently? So one of the, uh, one of the things that was... Um, kind of a a real handicap for guard previously was their lack of survivability and i was very concerned with the morale mechanic uh, and the new cover mechanic that guard was just going to be as squishy but i'm really finding that vehicles unless you can mass firepower on them it's really hard to annihilate them Hmm. uh the uh armor save mechanic that they have now uh gained like monstrous creatures before has been a absolute emperor send yeah. as it were <laughs> and uh the survivability of the individual individual guardsmen has also risen in in combination with uh 
difficulty uh, allocating targets to them. Like uh, when a bolter can do something to a chimera, the chimera is carrying a multi-laser and a heavy bolter at 93 points, whereas the guard squad has a grenade launcher and a heavy bolter at 53 points. Yeah. So between the two, sometimes it is better to take those sixes to wound or on the... Uh, or, excuse me, fives to wound on the Chimera. Yeah. So. It's even better. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so how many points will this new list be in eighth? Uh, aiming for 2,000, which right. has become the, the standard, as I understand it. Well, that, that's what the book says is the standard now. Sure, so. sure. How do you feel about the new um, abilities of vehicles degrading as they take more wounds uh, notion? I really enjoy that idea. Uh, one of my big criticisms of switching to uh, the 8th edition stat line for vehicles was that it felt like there, there was no vehicle feel to them anymore. And this gives them a flavor that establishes them as vehicles, although it does uh, many uh, monstrous creatures and whatnot also suffer from this. But it, it distinguishes them from infantry. Because they are so powerful, but it's a way to decrease them in a way that previously immobilized or weapon result, weapon destroyed results did right, uh, right. that have now subsequently disappeared. Yeah, sure. I was uh, filling out a list today for a tournament coming up this weekend, Liberty Hammer, which by the time this episode is released will have passed. I'm bringing two Vindicators and a Predator with the las cannons the three las cannons essentially and both with uh, storm bolters um and i was you know filling out long story short i was filling out the army list and it was the first time i had read that part of the new imperial index that went through the the stat line of the vindicators and the predator and those degrading stats i think are amazing you look at one or two one or two wounds left that vindicator is moving three inches and hitting on a five up it's like, I could just picture it like sparking and limping along. And there's like a bit of weird, like off color smoke coming out of one of the exhausts. You know, it like looks more and more pathetic as its performance degrades. And I think it's a wonderful idea. Absolutely. I love, I, I, I'm really looking forward to playing with them and keeping them well above six wounds the whole time. Yes. <laughs> uh, somebody, I did notice online, I was looking through the, uh, the Skatarii specs and someone had pointed out that in the Imperial 2 index, the Onager Dune Crawler. There's no wound, spec- no wound degradation specification for six wounds. It skips right over six. <laughs> that I, I did notice that as well. It is very odd. Yeah, eleven to seven, I like that. and then five to three. Exactly. Yeah. Then one and two. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. So six wounds. I'm just going to be back at full power. I guess that's my assumption. <laughs> it's some like mysterious bell curve of, of performance that happens right there. <laughs> yeah. I know. Also, you've been uh, playing a good bit of Shadow War Armageddon. Yes. How's that, uh, how's that been going? You've been enjoying it? I have. Um, huge Necromunda fan uh, in the past. And uh, I do have some complaints, but overall, the game itself is a lot of fun and does really bring back a lot of that old Necromunda feel. So I, it, we played in the uh, War of the Rats. The War of the Rats, league. a league, which Jason talked about in the last episode. Yeah. A lot of fun. Uh, really well-run league. Really enjoyed the uh, the thematic feel of it. Uh, yeah. We are we were not on Armageddon uh, for it, uh, and we were playing for Salvage instead of Prometheum, uh, and that just allowed a lot more of the the uh, classic narrative feel. Yeah. That uh, that Necromunda thrived on. Yeah, it, it, the games are really great. They played quickly, relatively quickly. 
Um, the, we had a lot of good terrain, which helped. There was a wide variety of terrain. And then Jason would walk over with one of the strange little additional accessory characters he had wonderfully painted and say, okay, everybody roll a D6. And then the little character would just do something really weird and something strange would happen and the whole game would change. It was really great. And I was really impressed with the turnout. Uh, we, you know, we played at our friendly local gaming shop and it was packed every Thursday with people playing. It was really nice to see. Yeah. I was, I was into it, yeah. Unfortunately, I didn't have a chance to paint up all this terrain that's on the table in time. But for the next time around, uh, it'll be nice to up, it, up the terrain game even further. So what were some of your criticisms of Shadow War Armageddon? So the feel of Necromunda is very much the feel of second edition, where nothing is guaranteed. Um, you have so much uncertainty where everyone is a normal human, uh, you know, your base shot at anything is 50-50, and you don't have a lot of access to a lot of high-tech things that enhance your guaranteeing of results. And I just felt that many of the armies, uh, for instance, uh, Tyranids, could be easily set up for guaranteeing a result in close combat. Yeah. If yeah. you, could, if you yeah. could angle the close combat, you were going to win regardless. Yeah, yeah that's true. So I found that true with Tyranids and the Eldar. There were a couple of Eldar characters that if they got in close, that was pretty much it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And and that, of course, is an inevitable com, uh, consequence of increasing the power of the of the characters involved. Right. Um, yeah, for sure. Whereas these, are, you know, the original Necromunda is random gangers with zero training. These are right. just schmoes who are desperate and trying to survive. And, you know, in uh, in Shadow Warrior, your lowest of the low is a trained Imperial Guardsman who then... Gra- who then graduates to a veteran Imperial Guardsman. Right, right. So, so. there's going to be some power there. Yes. Yeah, yeah that's cool. <laughs> Good. Purchases. Anything interesting? For 8th, uh, I had to pad out the Steel Legion models that I had. I bought a couple more squads, and it's been really interesting, actually, looking at the web store, because every couple of days they'll be back in stock hmm. for about six hours. Wow, so yeah. people are buying them again. People are definitely buying, and and not just Steel Legion. I've noticed that with the Valhallans and the Mordians. Oh, great. And I don't think I've seen a Mordian army on the table since... Probably 2003. <laughs> so, so people are probably dusting them off and, yeah. and having a go at them again and augmenting them just like you are because Absolutely. they're a more viable army to play in 8th. And, and in a way that you didn't even see back in 5th uh, edition, hmm. where it, which was kind of like you know the, the highest point. The, the, the perihelion of Imperial Guard has always been 5th edition. Perihelion. Yeah, <laughs> closest to the sun. That's yeah. a great word. I like that. <laughs> I bought the... Um, Dark Imperium box set. Much to my chagrin, I'm not crazy about the uh, the Primaris Space Marines. I think they look like Infinity Tags. From the pose to the slickness of the armor, they look very much inspired by, like, like kind of a cookie-cutter anime robotic dude. I haven't played with them yet. I've only seen them non-painted in person, just built up. Joe had brought some to the uh, release party on Saturday. I think they're, I think they're, they're tall. I mean, they're big dudes. Yeah. Which, I, which is kind of a bummer, because they look kind of really strange next to regular Space Marines. The True Scale Project, I mean, that, it, it is about the size of the True Scale Project, yeah. but yeah. So what, what's your take on the models? Uh, I am also not a fan. Uh, personally, the uh, rise of 30K and, and the feel of like the re, rediscovering the 30K, I, I'm not as wild about. I am a diehard 40k fan and i I really appreciate the grimdark and the struggle of it so primaris marines just feel 
to me like uh, GW uh, taking a step away from what I appreciate. Hmm. But uh, and 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 now that you pointed out, wow, yeah, they definitely the tag do, thing, right? I yeah. mean, they look especially the poses. A couple of the poses, I'm like, man, pretty sure that's Infinity Box. Right? <laughs> I'm thinking of the Anaconda Mercenary tag. That's exactly, yeah, exactly that's right. What it is. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. So we'll see. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure they'll be fun to play with. I'll build them and paint them and, and put them on the table. And do something. I really like the Death Guard. I really like the looks of them, especially the special characters in there. There's like one dude with like this big like semi face growth thing happening. It looks just awesome. He's kind of paunchy. Which I kind of like. I like the weird, like, kind of out of shape looking yeah, models. Yeah, the Death Guard have always had a few <laughs> extra pounds on them. So I look forward to seeing those up and about. And uh, I look forward to the people that we play with frequently to put them on the table. Because I know somebody's going to do some really dynamite paint job to them. Yeah, It's fun to see on the table, yeah. I really did appreciate that when you buy a box that big, you get the hardcover. Like, the box felt heavy. Mm-hmm. Like, you were getting into something. Granted, it turned out I wasn't too crazy about the plastic in the box, but that's fine. The new rule book is awesome. Yes. The, the look and feel of it is terrific. I was really concerned with the stuff. I tried to avoid the leaks, right? I tried to not see a single page from it. Oh, wow. I try not to watch movie trailers either. I'm that guy, right? So I did see a couple of like blurry snapshots on Instagram, and I was really afraid that the look and feel of the book was going to echo that of Age of Sigmar. And Age of Sigmar is a wonderful game, but the layout of those books like the typography and the graphic design and just how it's put on the page, it really it doesn't appeal to me. And I've always thought that the GW paid a lot of attention to the art direction that went into those, the codices and the, the rule books of 40K that I've seen. And I was afraid this was going to be a departure. But I was re- very pleasantly surprised in both the rule book and the index books. The art is awesome. The typography is great. They didn't pick some weird, goofy font, which I was really afraid of for some reason, some really weird, goofy typeface. Um, so I was pleasantly surprised with the whole thing. Yeah. I even found myself looking at the, uh, limited edition to 2000 copies, oh, wow. the big box mamma jamma, right? The $450. That's the problem. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they shot for the moon and I think they missed it. That thing I, I checked, I think yesterday it was still available. Oh, wow. Yeah. So 2000 copies worldwide still available like two weeks after the pre-order. I don't know. Maybe that doesn't they, bode well. Yeah, maybe they maybe they did just price it out, out of the stratosphere. I mean, the mini rule book is cool. It's got some crazy box for the, you know, foil limited edition Maelstrom deck or whatever. You know, there's some really neat little bits in there, but I like spending money on dumb but that didn't, I don't know. I just couldn't bring myself to A do little it. much. Yeah. It was a little much. It was a little much. 250, maybe 300 Gs, but 420 is or 450, whatever it is, is a lot of loot. Yeah. And the fact that they're still left there, I think, I think is a testament to that. I also bought, there's this game store down at the shore. It's called East Coast Gamers, right? This guy, Walt, owns it, and he's got a great staff. This guy, Mike, in there works there, too. Great guys. I go there every time I go to visit family down at the shore. There is someone's private collection for sale in there that they had put on consignment at this game shop. And it is a private collection of, there were hundreds of Black Library novels. There was an original Battlefleet Gothic box with all the stuff in it down there. There was tons of old GW stuff in this random game store. And this store specializes in vintage video games and Magic the Gathering. They have a small, the small GW rack like a lot of stores do. But over the last year, they've had this massive personal collection for consignment. And the prices keep lowering every time I go in there, right? So this is where I got the, um, I got the Siege of Vrax books, like the three book set, the Forge World set, you know, which is awesome. And I went down there on Sunday and I picked up 
the Sanctus Reach Volume 1 and 2 bo- books, or it's like a box set. I'm looking at it now. I think it's four, it's four books, like novellas and a rules supplement. It's crazy. I got it for, it wasn't very expensive, but I was so pleased to pick it up because I'd never, ever seen it before. So every time I go in there, I try to buy either a heresy novel or, you know, one of the Eisenhorn books that I hadn't read or one of the Gaunt's Ghosts novels I hadn't read. And they're always, like, just refilling it from some random box in the basement. Like, there's always new stuff in there. I picked up, uh, like, the GW 30th anniversary issue from 1990-whatever. or the, oh, wow. uh, the, the White Dwarf. dwarf yeah. The White Dwarf, like, the 30th anniversary issue, which has this really strange... It looks really strange. That'll be fun to read. I got the... Um, I got that, the Imperial Armor Masterclass book. They had that randomly sitting there. But it's great. They have all this old, random GW stuff. So I was so stoked. Yeah, and then I, I, I had every single old codex there because because that's something you should do, right? Is read all the old books. <laughs> well, so, the great thing about the old books is... As much fluff as is in these books, there's ten times as much is that in right? the third and fourth, uh, third and fourth edition rule books. Ah, cool. They're amazing for cool. fluff. Cool, cool. I just I just started getting those the last couple of weeks because I wanted to do a look back kind of series of episodes on previous editions and how we got to eighth. You know, for my own educational purposes because I'd never read anything beyond the sixth edition codex, which I just paged through in the past. Um, so I got I got two, three, four, and. Two, three, four, five, six, and seven. Still shopping for one rogue trader, but that's either very expensive or you don't know really what you're buying because there's no photograph of the cover on like right. some random used book site. So I'm very hesitant. Yeah, I did see it at Adepticon, the original rogue trader rule book that Forge World had reprinted, and they're only selling it at events. So if I can't find a good copy used, you know, good used copy in the meantime. I might try to get it at uh, Nova Open in September because they may have it there at the Forge World booth. Sure. I saw it there at, at Nova and I was like, oh, it's interesting. Well, you know, what's up with that? That's cool. But there was such a line. There was such a, it's such a kerfuffle getting to the Forge World booth at that event. Probably at every single event they put a yes. Forge World booth because people are just, you know, because there's a oh, line. Oh, I don't have to pay postage from the UK? People, people are stoked and you're getting a relatively good exchange rate at the time. So it was it was intense. It was a very intense experience. Um, you just find yourself grabbing stuff off the rack like, oh my God. Ah, yes. you know? But I, I didn't grab that one, but I, I will next time around. Yeah, Black Friday in September. Oh man, for real. But I was really glad to pick up those Sanctus Reach books. That's uh, Space Wolves and Grey Knights versus Orcs. And there's a supplement, which I think was originally included with the Sanctus Reach box set, which I think was Space Wolves and Orcs. Mm-hmm. Between buying that book and putting together this spearhead detachment for Liberty Hammer, my first 8th edition tournament, that's been my hobby progress. We'll take a short break, and we'll be back. Let's jump into the managing the meta section. This is a rules review talking about the meta, the meta, if you will. So how many games of 8th edition have you had under your belt in the last week? Two now. Sweet. I had only one. And something occurred to me as I was setting up for that game. Deployment is obviously different. But unless I'm crazy, unless you can tell me otherwise, I think deployment just got a lot more tactical. Oh, absolutely. Right? Why did, why did I feel like that? Well, the alternating deployment. Yeah, yeah. So what is it about... I, was, I, I, I did it, right? And then I'm thinking back, like, turn two. I'm like, man, I should have put this over there and then over there because I could see right in front of me that there was that, this, and this. On one hand, 8th edition is easier to play, 
right? It's, it's awesome that I can have a one-page sheet with every single special rule and everything on it. Like, that's so cool. But on the other hand, I, I, I might actually slow the game down just during the deployment phase. Like, I'm really going to have to start to think about move distances. I'm going to have to know what's across the table from me in terms of how fast it can get to me and any special rules it might have for increasing those chances, right? This new infiltrate, not infiltrate, you know, uh, what's it called? The uh, a teleport strike thing, right? I can go, they can get a captain within nine inches of me. He's like, oh, okay, whoa, all right. Watch out for that guy now, you know? And the whole it's change in the cover dynamic and everything is... It really took me aback. Turn two, I was like, man, I, would, I, could, I, could, I could win the heck out of this game if I had just deployed differently. Am I, am I right in, in saying that? Is, that? is that a logical thing? Is that a logical conclusion to come to in my second turn of my first game of 8th edition? I feel I've come, I've come to the same conclusion myself, so... Yeah. It, it makes the... And, and I, I, it is from Age of Sigmar, correct? Where I think in Age of Sigmar, you, it's, it's alternating deployment. It, it is in Age of Sigmar, but that mechanic is actually very old. Is that right? Yes. Uh, in 3rd edition, many of the uh, battle types uh, use that, and I believe it's even older than that. Huh. But I can see it taking me, I can see the game taking less time to play, but I'm going to be more tactical and more deliberate about how I put stuff on the table. Yes, absolutely. Whereas in 7th edition games, I just felt like, all right, cover, cover, cover. If I, you know, hope I steal the initiative. If I don't know, I have turned one, you know, and we're done. We're good. Well, and just the way that you can react to your opponent's deployment and then they react to your deployment, I think it's going to be very key, especially once uh, the meta starts to settle down a little bit and people start to understand other people's armies a little better. Yeah. So right now, I think we're still in a bit of a 7th edition mindset where you'll see the shooting army or the assault army. And mm. many armies still have that flavor, but I feel that there's so much more diversity and more potential in the army. So you're not going to see as uh, monolithic an idea behind so many uh, armies, especially now that uh, de- the, the idea of building an army around a Death Star right. is not right. going to be as useful. Uh, in addition, the way that characters are placed to create these buff bubbles uh, is definitely adding a layer to not just getting down uh, order, or not just getting down your units to react, but putting them down in an, in the order that will allow you to react in your first turn. Right. So uh, previously, I, I, I referenced the fact that this. Uh, came from earlier editions. In 3rd edition, the rule was a little more uh, uh, restrictive. In fact, you started with your heavy support. You deployed all of your heavy support. Oh, wow. And then all of your troops, and then all of your elites, I believe, then fast attack, and then HQ was last. So you were fixed to that order. And now not being fixed to that uh, progression of, of units, you're allowed to uh, you know, put your characters down first to create you know, this central bubble where your opponent goes, okay, now I know that's where he's going to be, and maybe fake him out a little bit with right, that. Or, right, right, you know, start putting down all of your fast units first because they can redeploy quickly. And, you know, if they are a little bit out of position, it's not a big deal. It's interesting you say faking out your opponent during deployment. I mean, I guess that's where it becomes this sort of weird, like, track cycling cat and mouse game, you know, where, what is he doing there? Why is he setting that over there? Why, why, you know, why, why is this happening over there? What's going to happen next over there, you know? Because I, I found myself, like, in 7th edition games, uh, especially with regard to characters, right? You'd want to bubble things around characters, or you'd want to put a character at the front that could support a great firing line behind them that might be a little soft on the armor side. You know, I'll just take it on the two-up, take it on the two-up, take it on the two-up, right? With that being out the window, 
It, I mean, it, it totally changes how the game is going to get started. Absolutely. Very and exciting it's, times. It's amazing. Yeah. And I didn't, I was like, okay, yeah, we're going to just put this down and put that down. And then I'll put this down. And I was like, oh, great. All right. I'll get some cover over here. Great. Fantastic. And then turn two, I was like, man, did I just mess that whole thing up? Yeah. <laughs> like it didn't even occur to me the tactical depth, depth, the tactical depth that was possible there. And I got very excited to play my second game, which will be Thursday. But I was like, man. My, I could have increased my odds like X number of percentage points if I had only done this, that, and the other thing right from the get-go, you know? So I won't, I won't be taking deployment for granted as I felt like I did in 7th edition. So not only is deployment order a new ball of wax entirely, right? We have new deployment types for matched play, which I think is probably the majority of what, you know, are the people that we game with are going to be playing. We'll probably be playing matched games more often than not. Um... Although I, I am kind of into some of the narrative missions that are in here, but that's neither here nor there. So let's talk about these standard deployment maps. Walk us through, Amin. So uh, you still have your standard Dawn of War, which puts uh, you 24 inches away from your uh, opponent and the uh, Vanguard Strike, the angled uh, setup, and the uh, Hammer and Anvil. All three of those have a 24-inch spacing between the sides, but now you have three uh, somewhat more colorful uh, setups. You have the uh, spearhead assault, very similar to the hammer and anvil, but uh, it's a it's an echelon deployment. You you are forced to triangle your front line out uh, in, in a bit, and it brings you six inches potentially closer to your opponent. Right. Which, as we were talking about before, with this uh, the uh, alternating deployment methods, kind of allows assault armies to get six inches closer but then also then more shooty intended armies can either refuse flank that so bunch up in a corner uh and uh, and and try and hide and stay as far away as possible or it gives them kind of the ability to screen out the opponent a little bit mm-hmm. give them some you know some squishy flack in the front to yeah. handle and then you know, you're caught out in the open when that uh, unit falls back. Uh, there's also Search and Destroy, which is very similar to the Cleanse-style quarters of previous editions. And then Frontline Assault, which is in the same way that Spearhead is uh, a slight alteration to Hammer and Anvil. Frontline Assault is a slight alteration to Dawn of War. And again, uh, and you're nine inches from the center point. Right. Again, yeah. that 18 inches away from your opponent. It's pretty wild. Did you have a favorite of the previous three deployments? Dawn of War... Uh, just because it kept things balanced. When you were playing uh, casual games that was just, you know, show up and don't want to think too hard, or playing somebody that, you know, you hadn't played before, Dawn of War kept everything nice and on the level. You were far enough away, but spread out enough. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did you have a least favorite of those three? Uh, probably Vanguard Strike, just because it was a little annoying to set up. Yeah, you know, yeah. Slightly, you know, one or two extra steps in determining what your deployments are. Sure, was. a couple more dice in weird places to make the lines and everything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And of the of the three new ones, Spearhead Assault, which is that hammer and anvil with the triangles, Frontline Assault, which is the Dawn of War with that closer center point triangle shape, and Search and Destroy, which is like that, almost like a Cities of Death. There's a Cities of Death map that looks very much like that. What do, what do you see being the most fun out of these three? In fact, Cities of Death was the exact thing I was going to reference. Uh, search and Destroy, absolutely. Right, uh, yeah. The quarters, you are closer to your opponent, but there is so much more room to maneuver. Right. Because you are kind of isolated in these quarters from each other, but you have these wide open flanks to exploit. Mm-hmm. So going up the middle, 
is useful and gets you to grip sooner. Yep. But then your opponent has all this space to run around. Right, right. And you can form, and this happened to me in a couple of Cities of Death games, where it becomes like this this sort of spiral vortex motion kind of a thing, right? Where two or three turns in, like you have a lot of stuff in the your opponent's deployment zone that you started off in and vice versa. Vis-a-vis like the mission, the, you know, whatever cards you were picking, whatever the mission was, you know, you were trying to play to objectives, of course, but, you know, two or three turns in, the whole board just kind of went, like it was twisted around that center point, that, uh, you know, that nine inch circle in the middle, which is awesome. And it also does put, in Cities of Death, I found it, it puts you into assaults really quickly, yes. which was fun, because you could just run right across that center point diagonal and just, you know, start beating stuff up, which, mm-hmm. is, which is really great, yeah. Why do you think it was important to add those to the new Warhammer in 8th edition? Because I think 8th edition is all about variety. Hmm. They want to keep things fresh. This is a new start, hmm. and they want to provide us as many angles to exploit, as many new you know, niches to explore as possible. And I feel like these deployment zones are going to be a huge, huge injection of life into the game. The movement phase also has gotten a facelift in the new Warhammer. I keep calling it the new Warhammer because that's what GW was calling it, right? We know it is 8th Ed, but it is the new Warhammer. The new hammer, if you will. It is a shiny new hammer. Speaking of which, I do really like the the new hammer icon in the front of the rule book. I think it's a, a wonderful combination of elegance and smash face Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it is good. The, the art style throughout is really great, as I said earlier, yeah. But let's talk movement phase. So gone is that unit, or what's the word? How, how was it phrased in 7th edition? Gone was that kind of universal movement per type, unit type. Kind yes. Of a, kind of a rule, right? Where infantry was 6 inches generally, etc. And so on, modified by a special rule. Now we have a movement statistic. Now we have a movement value per unit type. Which is a throwback to earlier editions, correct? All the way back to 2nd. Is that right? Yes. Hmm. So how does that change things going forward, you think? By looking back. The different movement values are going to add a lot of uh, uncertainty to the tabletop. Uh, the you know, normal human five-inch movement of uh, in- Inquisition and Sisters Battle and Imperial Guard uh, is, is just slightly slower, but that makes all the difference, as it were. Uh, you have so many more uh, ways to customize units now. Before the Eldar had battle focus to kind of make them unique you know they could run and shoot and that added a little you know extra on top of the six inches but but just by adding more inches to their base movement and then also some of them have that ability in addition you know you just have this added flavor to all of these units Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it also allows uh space marines to actually be eight feet tall giving them that one extra inch of movement because they're striding as if they were as big as they are yes (laughs) (laughs) a couple of other things in the movement phase that they've changed love the notion of advancing i like the fact that all the movement is now done in the movement phase it's not like an alternate move that happens in the shooting phase like it did in seventh edition right I think that's awesome. Yeah, and uh, in a lot of tournaments, you would just say, hey, I'm going to run these guys anyway. Can we just make this faster and throw this right into the movement? Let's do it now and get on with it. Yeah, Yeah. instead of making it a two-phase process. It makes a lot of logical sense. I think it'll be easier for new players to pick up and remember that they have advanced this unit and and get into that whole notion of advancing. Oh, I I forgot to run this guy. I forgot to run that guy because you were doing it in the shooting phase. And I'm like, you know. When it also makes it more of a tactical choice because before you were not required to run them 
before shooting. So you kind of had this option to see, okay, well, that shooting was good enough, so I guess I'll run these. Or, you know, they really don't have anything to do now. You know, I might as well run them. Now it's, I have to choose whether or not it's more important to go further and maybe grab an objective or maybe throw some more wounds on this unit that's threatening the objective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And falling back. Is that a throwback to previous editions? This is where falling back means you're locked in a combat. Your next movement phase, you can leave that combat by your move value as long as you don't end up within one inch of another enemy model. No, that's completely new uh, to 40k as far as I'm aware. The uh, dynamic, though, is awesome. It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible. So, so <laughs> you can have somebody locked in a combat. No, this isn't going to go well for me. Or... I have a better shooting option nearby. I'm going to fall this, this unit back or this character back. I'm going to open up whatever that model was fighting with to getting shot now by everything else I have on the board. Because once you've fallen back, you cannot shoot. That is your move, and it's like advancing. You know, that, that's, you are exhausted from the, the leaving of the combat and whatnot. I think, I think it's amazing. Yeah, for a realism nut like myself, uh, this is something called defense in depth. Hmm. This is a real-life strategic uh, intentional tactic that's a uh, strategy rather that's applied uh, sometimes referred to as defense and death uh, for obvious reasons but the idea is to pin your opponent in place force them into you know assaulting this unit and then just give up the ground without actually giving them anything and then exposing them to this new position and you'll find yourself in a situation where you'll be less prone to bring out that big attacky model out into the open to take on this group of whatever in the center of the board, because all of a sudden there's this big attacky model taking shots from everywhere else on, on the tabletop. Yeah, absolutely. Assault is more effective and at the same time more dangerous these days. Right, more effective in, the term, in terms of the fact that you get first attack if you charge, which is awesome too. But then, if your opponent falls back, there you are, all by your lonesome. Like, and with things being so much more survivable, that... You know, that assault is not necessarily guaranteed to do what you wanted it to do. So It's a very exciting change. Yeah, yes. It's a very exciting change. Yeah. So go- going from 7th to 8th with your guard army, how are you going to change how you put stuff on the board? So what I'm looking at uh, right now is the idea, my biggest concern is being assaulted. Because obviously that shuts down my guns. Whether or not that... Uh, actually destroys the vehicle is irrelevant you've prevented it from shooting and if it falls back it can't shoot so you know getting in contact with a lehman russ is the exact same thing as a crew shaken (laughs) result from before yeah so the imperial guard squads that i have are no longer about um putting out rifle fire as they used to be now they are almost entirely dedicated to bubble wrap and the chimeras that i've attached to them also do a fair amount of running uh, interference for my heavy hitters so you're gonna so you're gonna deploy them in such a way that you have troops surrounding those tanks just so a model can't get in front of that tank engage it in combat basically to start jumping up and down in front of it whether it does any damage or not doesn't matter because you just don't want to be in the position where you have to fall back absolutely oh, that's interesting because then you're losing a turn of shooting on that particular high pointed very dangerous potentially tank yes and now with uh moving and firing heavy weapons even in a vehicle giving you a minus one although the imperial guard turret is uh, ignores that minus one but all of the other either sponson or hull mounted weapons are still subjected to that when you're forced to move and relocate to avoid being charged it it 
gives you orc shooting. So let's zoom out and talk about the movement phase. You have first turn. You have orcs across from you on the table. I, I guess it's hard to just kind of hard to imagine what you're going to do. But in terms of your first moves, are you the kind of player that has like opening moves? Not typically. I, I'd like to think that you know each uh, battlefield prevents its own challenges, yeah, and yeah. especially fighting orcs. You know, I'd definitely be tempted to not move with you know my vanquisher, which now needs to put rounds on you know a death dread or something, and needs to do it accurately. Even though he's a commander, it's still a three up roll, a sixty six percent chance of hitting, sure. and that's only a fifty percent chance of wounding that model. Uh, with my strength aid cannon. So, you know, I need those first rounds to, you know, start putting damage out. So I would definitely be tempted to stay still with both uh, the Vanquisher and my Lehman Rust that's kitted out with all the heavy bolters, right. just because that, you know, that heavy firepower I, I'll be relying on to, to blunt that first charge. But all of my Chimeras uh, and uh, my Hellhound and the uh, and the Sentinels definitely will be running all over the shop trying to, you know, redeploy to get better interference lines, right. to open up firing lines, and to get my guardsmen onto the objectives that are not yet overrun. Because those, those orcs, when they come pouring through, uh, will pretty easily be able to bog down objectives because it's the number of models you have within three inches. Right. So in this case, a knight is the same number of models as an orc boy. Right. So, you know, it's very easy for the orcs to swamp those, and, you know, you want to get on them early to deny them the ability to uh, move in on them. Totally. Did the Not, not that we're going to dive too far into the shooting phase, but did the abandonment of template weapons make you feel any kind of way? I was just generally nonplussed about it. Yeah, uh, I was it, the same way. Yeah. yeah, I liked templates. They were flavorful. They were fun. But it adds an interesting mechanic the you know the d6 or the 2d3 shots or you know whatever it is right uh it did make uh in general most of guard weapons less accurate um but it allowed for things uh for instance my basilisk now rolls d rolls 2d6 and chooses the highest number of hits so before when the basilisk was firing at a vehicle that wasn't necessarily a good use because it only got one hit on it Mm. so it was kind of a toss-up whether you're going to do anything with it that turn. Now, however, you have a chance to put, you know, four hits on this thing, and, you know, hitting on fours, that's two hits now that have a potential of doing damage to it. So it just adds a, a, a new kind of dynamic. The Demolisher Cannon. If it's into a unit of five or more models, it's D6 damage into it as, a, as opposed to D3. And here's another interesting typo, because uh, in the Guard Codex, it's ten models or more. Same weapon different number of models interesting typo or i'm not sure um in in my head right now the profile on the actual unit says five but the profile in the back of the book oh okay says ten i think it's gotta be five yeah i i would hope it's five because you know this is this is that terminator killer bread and butter weapon shooting at those five terminators and making a ten seems a little punitive yeah 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 absolutely uh, flamers are now d6 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 auto hits mm. but do not ignore cover anymore yeah the whole cover mechanic is is a whole other topic of conversation almost the entire unit has to be in cover now it's amazing <laughs> what but is is good in my opinion the forcing forcing your opponent to choose between cover and objective has always been an important aspect of the game and by allowing them to chain units out to you know get a few in cover and then put 
the hits on those models or you know tweak the the various placement of models to you know make sure that the ones in the line of fire are in cover you know this this allows you to force your opponent with your placing of objectives to choose between cover or not right right another layer again another layer to that weird onion it's going to be the new hammer it's great yeah we'll take a break and be back in just a minute Let's make 8th edition easier to play. In addition to what GW has done to make the rules easier to manage and to reduce the paperwork involved and the housekeeping involved, we have more wounds to contend with. And we have command points now. So in front of Ian and I, I just placed the GW command point dice set, which there are six of these random kind of six die in here with little symbols on them. Like state indicators. Yeah, yeah. So there's a, the one is pinned. I'm turning it around. There's uh, two is deep strike. Three is what you call fall back. Four is advance. Five is five is go to ground, which is which is perplexing. And six is charge. Um, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I would use the use these for that purpose. What do you think of these? Yeah, the uh, I, they could be useful. I mean, because you're not rolling them, you just need the die facing. So honestly, for a couple of these, I'd take a little scrap of post-it note or paint over them to indicate, you know, whatever particular niche, you know, token or whatever I needed hmm. to indicate. Almost like those mod cubes that were out a while ago where you could put the different sides in the little plastic grid. and Yeah, well, I haven't seen those in a long you know, time. Yeah. It kind of indicates status with those, yeah. So, so those, those, are, those are interesting. I don't know. i got to fool with them, see if I'm going to use them. But more interesting are these other D6s. These are the black ones with the green skulls all over them. And when I first picked up this box, I was like, wow, this is weird. They give me, you know, this is 12 or so of these. Like, and I thought these were going to count my command points. So if I take a battalion detachment, a battalion formation, I'm going to just use the six and count them down and use my gameplay D6s to, to roll my command points. But no, I'm going to put, so for instance, my list I'm playing with this weekend, I have four command points. I'm just going to put four of these die on the table. Duh. Like the light bulb went off yesterday for me. I'm not the smartest guy in the world. So I realized what the purpose of having so many of these darn things was. And I could even offer them to an opponent. Say, would you like to use these die to, 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 for your command points so we can both see how many points each other has with regards to command point rolls? That makes sense to me. Do you like that? Yeah, I think the transparency is going to be very key for command points, uh, not just uh, demonstrating at the beginning, but also keeping track throughout the game, making sure that both you and your opponent are fully aware of you know, what your options are at any time. I only have one game of 8th edition under my belt, but even in that one game... We were kind of egging each other on, like, oh, do you want to use a command point for a re-roll? Do you want to re-roll that? Do you want to re-roll that? You got two left. Do you want to re-roll that? You know, I could see that being a, especially in a more casual game, you know, oh, don't forget, you have a command point. You have two command points. You could do that. You could do this, you know. It's kind of interesting to be able to see directly what the other person has and just pull one away, put it in the box after you use it. Another thing to keep track of, which is especially important, wounds. Is it a case for the D20s to come out? Is it... A matter of writing stuff down. What are you going to do? 
Well, I, my intention, uh, my initial intention was to use uh, my D12s. I'm a role player as well, and they are uh, the least used of all the dice. Mm. It's a running joke amongst the RPG community. So finally, uh, have a real purpose in life. But uh, I think it's smart to use something other than D6, right? So they can't get mixed up in the gameplay. Die. Right. Very obviously, a distinct token. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, my issue with D10s, D12s, D20s, right? You put them on the base, say you have a knight, right? Put it on the base. You move the knight, the die gets knocked off. Something, you know, something invariably is going to knock around the die. Especially those odd, I'm not, I don't know geometry too well, but the ones that have that many facets and are the two pointy edges sticking out of a central kind of a line, right? Oh. They're, they're very pl- prone to kind of... Right, the shotgun dice. Yeah, they're yeah. easier to knock over than a D6, mm-hmm. right? They're easier to change the number than a D6. So I feel like I agree. I'm, I'm going to... I'm going to try D10s this weekend, but I'm going to say, I'm moving this, this has X number of wounds from here to here. Mm-hmm. Again, to maintain that transparency between myself and my opponent, and so that there's no, oh, the dice fell off, or knocked it this way or that, or... So there's just no questionable mechanic shenanigans in terms of just moving something around and you happen to hit a die. That would, I think that would add a lot to the game if we would all just agree to say, okay... This, you know, my bloodthirster has X number of wounds left. I'm moving it over here. Okay, great. Die falls off. No big deal. I just said there's five wounds. We both saw the die at five. Okay, here we go. We're going to move on. When maintaining communication with your opponent throughout the game, no matter what the mechanic you were like, you know, especially learning the new rules, it's very easy for, you know, veteran players to go, okay, and six to wound. Oh, no, no, no. That's a strength three weapon shooting at a toughness five model. That's only a five. You know, you keep that... Yeah, you know, the, the flow of information. Yeah, for sure. Um, one thing I don't see doing is writing stuff down on like a little dry erase pad. Um, I don't like to write things down when I'm playing. And I feel like if it's like in a little notebook on my side of the table, it's it shouldn't be something that's hidden from your opponent. You know, I think to keep, keeping track of wounds, keeping track of command points can be right out there in the open. It can be right in front of us. It can be something that, you know, is a tactical tool for both sides to have knowledge of. Yes, absolutely. This game is not about concealing things from your opponent, so making that token out there and obvious for them has always been kind of important and integral to the game. Which brings us to, uh, you had mentioned Alex using the poker chips. Yes, yeah. the stack of them uh, right on top of a piece of terrain right in the middle, and, you know, as, as much of it allows, you know, your opponent to, you know, see what assets you still have to call on, I feel like, uh, at least for myself, using them uh, helped me remember that I had them to use. For sure, yeah, yeah. With, um, going back to the wound counters, I did see online, there's a company that's making these little resin, they look like, like a, almost a barrel of beer turned on its side, right, or a keg of beer turned on its side, with two little counters built into the top. So it's like a vertical stitch counter kind of a thing. You know, we'd, we, we had talked offline about the stitch counters and maybe using those because they're flat, they're kind of inobtrusive, they're cheap, and they're sort of detented, so you can, you know, you don't, you don't have to worry about knocking them over necessarily. That's an interesting idea. I'd like to see them in use. But this company had built them in such a way so you could maybe build it onto the side of a vehicle or kind of tuck it into some ruins terrain on a bigger base for a bigger model. You know, you had mentioned earlier that the, one of the Titans has 70 wounds. Yes. So you could put in two or three of these little stitch counter or these little barrel counter kind of shapes into its base. You've got plenty of room on that big base. And keep track of wounds that way. I thought that was kind of interesting. What do you think of that? Yeah, for the for the Warlord Titan, you would absolutely need something that allows you to actively keep track of it and in a fixed because you know, keeping 3d20s balanced on its base as it moves around I, 
that would be an absolute nightmare. For sure, yeah. Even if it is the only model in your army. <laughs> <laughs> the um, I've seen, I think it was for War Machine and Hordes, there are these, it's like a disc that attaches to the base that you can set the D6s oh, yeah. in. Oh, I haven't seen that before. What were you thinking? So there was this old game called Mage Knight uh, from... I, I don't even know if it's still played anymore. Uh, at least 20 years old. And uh, the model itself was based on a disc that rotated. Oh. And it allowed you to keep track of all kinds of uh, things. Because the, the models, in in a similar way to 40K now, where the number of models, or the, excuse me, the number of wounds you've taken uh, indicates your effectiveness... Uh, the wounds you took in Mage Knight determined, you know, how many powers you had access to, how far you could move, uh, that kind of thing. Right. So, you know, it, it was actually, instead of just a regular base, it was actually built into the base itself. That's interesting, so. yeah. I've seen them um, in X-Wing. They have, uh, there's like a little cardboard counter kind of thing built into the base, probably a similar notion of those little discs, like a lot of board games have them, those two kind of cardboard layers that kind of slide around one another, you know. But it'll be interesting to see how the uh, the aftermarket accessories uh, providers of the hobby kind of latch onto this and give us better ways to show wounds, and better ways to keep track of wounds, and better ways to keep track of command points. In the meantime, I'll be using these black and green GW dice for one per command point. Still got to figure out what these other dice are really going to be very useful for. And I'll use uh, probably a D10 or a D12 uh, for the um, for wound tracking. As, as uh, in the first tournament this weekend. Another thing to add to this section is the use of previous edition, the use of supplements designed for previous editions of play. Are they useful in 8th edition? I bring this up because I received a gift of the Planetary Onslaught book, which had like Cities of Death in it. It has a bunch of these previous, or it has a bunch of 7th edition supplements all kind of wrapped up in one. And they're great. You know, it's another D6 table to roll on a fun mission for, right? But are they still useful in 8th edition? So they are, because many of them are in the new Warhammer 40,000 rulebook. Starting with Planet Strike, Planet Strike, Planet Fall. Yes. Cities of Death are here. How do you feel about this, Ian? I love these, personally. Um... Whenever, you know, anybody who's played this game for a year or two, you do start to get a little stagnation with the game, especially in 7th edition, as I said before, we were playing mostly Dawn of War, very similar setups. So anytime you can add variants to these things, it's amazing. And you really get to feel uh, a lot of the flavors of the armies with the different setups. I, for one, love asymmetry in games. I am far more concerned with having a fun game than having a balanced game. Mm. So whenever, like, with Planet Strike, that is what the Space Marines do. I mean, the Space Marines are not a line force. They don't stand there and wait for you to charge and then receive your charge and give fire and give ground and, you know, counter-assault. They're a surgical strike army. There's a reason they're designed to ride in a, in a drop pod. Right. And so, you know, you have this whole mission set up here where you you know give the space marines their due where you you know have the orcs riding their rocks literally an asteroid that they're just on that you know impacts the earth and they somehow survive yeah (laughs) you know you you have these amazing opportunities for really fun thematic games that allow you know armies to uh to 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 feel their full force cities of death has always been a favorite 
of mine yeah, personally. Great, great missions. It dramatically changes the feeling of the game. You have this claustrophobia. You have this uh, inability to move for many units. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in past editions, if you didn't have a dozer blade on your vehicles, don't show up right. to Cities of Death. That was always the fun thing about it was your friend who showed up with three Land Raiders, you kind of chuckled at like, all right, <laughs> let's see how this goes for you kind of deal. So, you know, you have this, you know, really fun way to flesh out the game and create these opportunities for the armies to flourish with what they're good at. Right, right. The um, I noticed here, I had this my first time paging through for the recording, so forgive me. In the 8th edition rulebook, you get one Planet Strike mission, you get one Cities of Death mission, you get one Stronghold Assault. So I would imagine with some tweaks, and each of those comes with their own stratagems, which you can spend command points on, which is awesome. And I imagine, I have to read it, but I imagine you could adapt the other five cities of death missions you could adapt the other five stronghold assault missions from seventh ed and previous editions to fit for eighth oh absolutely yeah the the modularity that these missions have always had uh, cities of death i think first showed up in fourth edition as you know an additional installment and there the only real difference was that they were layering on these rules that kind of emulated the city itself so like everything was difficult terrain uh, you know you had all these so it was a very specific place yeah it mm-hmm. was it was a very specific war zone right. kind of feel uh but there was nothing stopping you from taking the regular mission and just saying you know this is a dense jungle that you know we can modify these things slightly for right. and and you know we're using all forest terrain and whatnot and you know there so so instead of uh you know you had your uh your rate your your necron wraiths slinking through the sewers and popping up in random places instead they were you know swinging tarzan style through yeah. the pines. a buddy of mine had that exact game uh, uh imperial guard versus necrons in a dense jungle and in fourth edition the necrons were garbage they struggled terribly but it was this great way to get them in close enough to the imperial guard to actually get a chance to, to use shoot. the trees yeah. yes <laughs> It was a really cool. fun game that added a whole new, you know, layer of layer of thought to it that, you know, after, you know, six months, we're going to be a little more comfortable with alternating deployment and command points and yes, adding right. these things in and having them in from the get-go mm-hmm. as opposed to a separate supplement, I think will we'll make people more comfortable having them. I think that's great. As soon as we wear off some of the spot UV printing on the front, right. it'll, it'll be nice to have some new missions to play. Yes. Yeah, some alternative ways to do it. I look forward to reading through these, and then I'll break out that uh, Planetary Assault book and see if those missions can be adapted. And it popped into my head, really, because, as I mentioned earlier, I picked up that Sanctus Reach set, and that has a campaign book in it. And there's tons of old campaigns. You know, there's there's all, all kinds of stuff of missions, of series of missions that you're, you're you know, intended to play through. Um, so I'm curious to see how all that stuff adapts to the new Warhammer 40,000. I think that'll be a fun thing to explore, like you said, after we get really comfortable in 8th edition. Absolutely. And another thing, actually, I suggest you look into is stratagem. So a lot of these are coming from the advent of Apocalypse in 4th edition. And I feel like there's a lot more to be mined in that original book. There were, shoot, probably four dozen stratagems. And this book is using maybe a dozen, maybe two dozen. Yeah. So definitely a lot of those older books have some gems in there that can be pretty easily ported into what we have now. Mm. And there's also been talk of the the stratagems 
becoming very force specific, very army specific ah, in, as the, as Ace Edition kind of develops, you know, yes. to get more flavor and character kind of into what your particular army can do. That'll be good. Yeah. Probably very much like what we saw with the release of the Angels of Death supplement for 7th yes. edition, where all of a sudden all the Space Marine chapters got real specific. Right. And they got real cool stuff that they could do that was very, very chapter specific, which has made it very, very characterful, very flavorful. If they can achieve some of that kind of customization with command points, that, that's, a, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And by confining it to command points, I think that gives a good balance uh, sometimes you could really capitalize on some of those rules or uh you know a particular for uh, formation and kind of get it to run away i remember the orbital strike force the two assault squads and two devastator squads that was just a little a little too sure a, a little too high up there yeah, a little too good yeah right but by putting it behind the command point restriction you a force your your player to adhere to a battle forged army and b give it a limited run yep you can only use it once per turn or excuse me once per phase uh and probably once per turn because they're they're very often somewhat phase specific outside right. of just the generic reroll uh and uh and and then you have a limited number of them so. right right yeah, I look forward to seeing how that develops as we get more specific and more uh, more information comes out. Excellent. We'll take a short break, and we'll be back. Future history. Talking about some some of the background, some of the fluff. Today, I want to talk about Karn. He's a former world eater, warhound. What can he cook? I wrote down here, right? There's a very funny um, couple of pages on 1D4chan about Karn and how nice a guy he actually is, which was a very funny read today. I always enjoy that stuff. I'm going to read a quote. This is from 8th Captain Karn, his unpublished treatise, The 18 Legions. Karn notes... Because we couldn't be trusted, the Emperor needed a weapon that would never obey its own desires before those of the Imperium. He needed a weapon that would never bite the hand that feeds. The World Eaters were not that weapon. We've all drawn blades purely for the sake of shedding blood, and we've all felt the exultation of winning a war that has never even needed to happen. We are not the tame, reliable pets that the Emperor wanted. The wolves obey when we would not. The wolves can be trusted when we never could. They have a discipline we lack because their passions are not aflame with the butcher's nails buzzing in the back of their skulls. The wolves will always come to heal when called. In that regard, it is a mystery why they name themselves wolves. They are tame, collared by the emperor, obeying his every whim. But a wolf doesn't behave that way. Only a dog does. That is why we are the eaters of worlds, and the warhounds no longer. That's quite a statement there. He's a world eater. He's down with Angron in the 41st millennium, who is a demon primarch, formerly a regular old superhuman primarch. So, I encountered Karn first as the 7th edition model. Right, he's in that kind of great, you know, berserker kind of pose. He's got the chains kind of hanging off. He's got the big jammy things coming out of his helmet. And he looks like a crazy person, right? He's got a, a plasma pistol. He's got this huge axe. Chain and he's axe. cool. He's, yeah, he's got a huge, you're right, he's got a gore child, right? Um, so I first saw it, I thought it looked, a, I thought it looked very 
Age of Sigmar. It looks like a high fantasy model, so I wasn't super crazy about it. But then I read some of the story behind Karn. In uh, one of the, there's a couple of short stories that mention him, and uh, Betrayer, which is a Horace Heresy novel by Aaron Dembski Bowden, which is a wonderful novel. Um, I'm almost done with that, so I wanted to dive into some of Karn's story. What do you know about Karn, Ian? Um, not much outside of uh, the tabletop mechanics of him. He uh, is infamous for uh, doing sometimes more damage to the player than his opponent. Uh, and then the uh, the I, I read the uh, short story from the from one of the uh, om- not omnibus one of the collections from uh, the uh, Horus Heresy series where he's uh, meeting Angron for the first time. Yes, that's the story that we were talking about earlier. Yes, that is a wonderful a wonderful story, and uh, I'll, I'll read some of the a summary of some of that. Right. <clears throat> so Angron was pulled. He was teleported away by the Emperor off of his homeworld of Nuceria, where he was in the middle of successfully leading a rebellion of the gladiator slaves that were sort of captured on that world to serve as entertainment for the aristocrats of that world, right? It's kind of like a feudal setup, and they all kind of, they all really liked this, you know, just like the old Roman, um, the like a... Gladiators in the Colosseum, bingo, yes. Bingo, like yeah. gladiators in the Colosseum. Yes, he is the Spartacus character of the 41st millennium. Bingo, bingo, or the 31st, right. rather. But he, was, but he was super salty about getting ripped away from his brothers and sisters in the middle of this global war he was leading against their captors, against their, ins- against their slavers, really, right? Well, so it's important was- to note there that his anger is not just from being pulled away from the combat. The emperor literally sides with his enemy. The emperor pulls him away in kind of a key moment in one of the battles and basically abandons Angron's followers to death and then reinstitutes this feudal system to create stability on the planet. There's there's a great scene in Betrayer where Angron is standing on the battlefield where that final battle was taking place the sort of the you know the keystone moment of that battle he was leading his 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 friends his his brothers and sisters he called them to victory in when he was ripped away and there's a section of the book where angron goes back to the sort of the king's palace of the world and you know winds up like crushing this one general's head in his hands and there's like people in the court just kind of fainting and falling over themselves people don't know what to do they lock the doors right and at the end of this this encounter with the boy king it turns out this the, the same dynasty that angron was fighting against is still in power but now there's this boy king on the throne and one of the last things he says i think he says it to karn in that kind of throne room he's like we're going to kill everybody in the city and then we're going to kill everybody on this world and that's the end of the story like we're just, we're just going to we're going to wreck face right now, right? It's an amazing scene because it speaks to the impression that a Primarch and Space Marines have on folks that had only seen them in sort of the legends of their world. Mm-hmm. They had known the Emperor. You know, they were a compliant uh, Imperial world. They had known of Space Marines, but they don't obviously don't see them every day. Right. And a bunch walk into the throne room and, like, crush a couple of heads in their power fists. And then, you know... Here comes this avenging angel from nowhere it was kind of badass yeah, it was yeah. really kind of badass right but, but the story that you were referencing is a great one it's when the emperor had transported angron up into the belly of a ship and kind of just locked him up and i think in the story it's described at this kind of just dark kind of dungeony space right and several then warhound 
space marines go in to try to talk to their you know their father essentially their right? yeah newly discovered uh, yeah their gene dad you know and Ang- um and Karn is the only one who a can survive long enough to actually have a dialogue with him mm-hmm. and then kind of talk him off of this super angry you know duh, he's always super angry but <laughs> to to kind of and talk him off of that super violent precipice that Angron is so easily sent to. Right, right. Demonstrate that he can take his anger and redirect it. Right, right. And there's a there's a great. I'll, I'll read I'll read a quote, kind of from the story, kind of just from a summary of the story. <clears throat> Angron attacked Karn as soon as he entered and came dangerously close to killing him. But Karn kept his composure. But Karn kept his composure in such contrast to the previous officers that Angron was reluctantly impressed. Karn swore to Angron that his refusal to fight back was not cowardice, but rather the complete awe and obedience which all of the warhounds held for their premark. He also managed to convince Angron that, if Angron was hungry for war, then the entire legion was at his command, and the crusade offered a whole galaxy worth of enemies to slaughter. Awesome moment. Awesome yes. moment in that early history of the... Uh, <laughs> and that transition from war hounds to world eaters. Yeah. When it's such a unique interaction, I mean, this is literally the only Primarch who has an issue right like from the beginning with this arrangement all of the others either you know you have alpharis and omega just kind of swaggering up and like okay we're along for the ride you have you know lion who is this knight who bends the knee immediately just like knowing that okay this is the destiny that you know was awaiting me this whole time you know you have someone who rejects the emperor's vision before we have any inclination like this is completely not provoked by chaos he is his own man who says who who is shown what the emperor is about i.e. being ripped away from you know his his brothers and sisters and says no this is wrong i want nothing to do with this yeah yeah i'm glad you brought that up because all of the other primarchs that had a chance to hang out with the emperor so to speak on their home world before leaving joining the great crusade embracing their 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 history and their future in a way and moving on, right? Um, he spent time with, um, he spent a lot of time with Gilman. He spent a couple of weeks with Lorgar, and he spent time on their planet, kind of getting the affairs of the day in order, you know, getting things running well. So the, this 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 Primarch, who was huge in the society, who who mo- in most cases played a big role in, in the society on that world, could leave. And they could leave the world in imperial compliance and, and move on and, and, and go do more great crusade stuff. But Angron was not that way. He was pulled away from his brothers and sisters with no discussion, no kind of, hey, do you want to come on and do this thing? Do you know? The emperor could have gone down to the surface with the warhounds. The emperor could have won that war with Angron and changed the whole tenor of that relationship. Super interesting that he didn't. Well, so I think this gets into what the uh, the Warhounds and then the World Eaters are for, what their purpose is. And uh, it's important to know that in your original quote, the wolves that are being referred to are not the Luna Wolves, but rather the Space Wolves. The Space Wolves and the Warhounds and, the, and then the World Eaters are two chapters that have a very specific purpose. They exist... To destroy other space marine chapters 
That is their purpose, their reason to exist. And both Rus and Angron have a very fractious relationship with the Emperor, because the Emperor knows that at some point he is going to have to order one of them to go kill one of their brothers. Right, right. Yeah, during the infighting of Istvan III, Korn was believed killed in action, which is actually how the Betrayer novel starts. It starts with them finding his body impaled on the dozer blades of a rhino, right? Um, he, he was put on that rhino by Garviel Loken, which is an, another awesome character. Another whole other episode there, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he was not dead. And he, you know, he, he, was, he was revived, restored, and uh, kept on living to fight the good fight. He wields Gorechild, which was once Ang- one of Angron's axes, which is cool, and a plasma pistol. In 7th Ed, there was in the uh, Traitor's Hate supplement, I love this, um, there was a formation called Maelstrom of Gore, which was Karn and then 48 Berserkers. The, form, the formation gave them... I, I wish I, I knew somebody who played this formation. This would have been a fun one to play. Karn plus 48 Berserkers. Three, uh, it gives you plus three inches to charges. And once per game, I think it's called the Red Rain or something, or the Blood Rain, you can, uh, you can initiate this. They get basically an, init- a, a, an additional fight phase. So you can fight everything on the table if it's in close combat with your uh, Maelstrom of Gore guys. And then... Like fight on, just as go if it right never into happened. another assault phase, and and, 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 that, and in that assault phase, your your opponent can't fight back. It's just you fighting oh, them. No. Yeah. yeah, so that's forty up to you know forty eight berserkers. There was actually a box set that you could buy. Oh, and it was a Karn model and forty eight berserkers, which is pretty wild. In eighth edition, in eighth edition, he's got six attacks. He can fight twice per turn instead of once. Five wounds of four four up rerollable invul. No Furious Charge this time around, so he's only Strength 6. Gorechild ignores all negative modifiers to hit, so he's always, <laughs> so he's always hitting on a 2-up. It's crazy. That's uh, so a Strength plus 1, uh, AP minus 4, D3 damage. He never re-rolls his hits of 1 in melee. And, you know, like mm-hmm. some of those aura buffs that other uh, characters can give other models, like re-rolling 1s. He doesn't sure. get those. And his misses are still allocated to friendly models. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Within six inches? Which is pretty great. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty great. Mm-hmm. And there's a new death to the false emperor rule, which I haven't read in the rule book yet. It gives him exploding dice, which uh, gives him extra attacks on hit rolls of six. Oh, wow. And rolling six attacks twice in a round... You're going to definitely get be in a position to capitalize <laughs> right? on that yeah. ability. <laughs> His plasma pistol is strength eight, AP minus three, uh, two damage. Um, but the gets hot works a little bit differently on that. Whereas other models are killed instantly if it gets hot. This one, he just suffers a mortal wound. But it, it only has the overcharge stat line. Hmm. I think so. I think that is the case. Wow. Because it's, it's AP minus three. Yeah, I mean, I what, that is. that's so fluffy. Why would he not fire it right. on he's overcharge? Just, he's just constantly in overcharge. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or, or supercharge. Yeah. Um, so it's AP. Let's see. And with Gorchild minus four rend, that's. Yeah, that is that is always on uh, on supercharge. Yeah, that is brutal. Awesome. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, so his 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 corns chant, blood for the blood god, skulls for the skull throne. Classic, classic. Yeah, <laughs> um, we'll talk a little bit about the butcher's nails. What they were. What's the story with those? So it's a cybernetic implant uh, that goes into the back of the skulls of uh, the. It, it's from uh, uh, the planet that. Uh, 
Angerons from. The, yeah. It was implanted in the gladiators, and it stimulates their uh, aggression with basically constant pain. It, it constantly triggers a pain response and uh, has some pretty catastrophic uh, psychological effects. They can never be removed. It will kill you. Even a space marine will be killed by their removal. And librarians cannot get them. Right. It will kill anybody who is psychically attuned. Yeah, they, the librarians freak out, and then they tend to kill everybody else around them at the same time. Yes. Yeah, which is pretty wild, yeah. It's, it's a pain stimulator, but it can be ebbed only by violence. So every time, so like when Corrin is feeling a bit twitchy and all of a sudden the butcher's nails start acting up and doing their pain thing, the only thing that makes that pain go away, the only thing that brings that, it sounds very much in the novel like a, you know, like a painkiller kind of opiating opiate effect, is blood for the blood gods, skulls for the skulls skull for the skull you know? <laughs> so it, it's, it's an, you know, for a character like Angron, for, a, a, for, a, for an army like his... What a great element to add to the story. Yes. The only way you cannot be in pain is to kill. Mm-hmm. So no wonder, of course they're going to run into battles they don't need to fight. Of course they're going to take an approach that is completely non-tactical. They're just going to run straight ahead and try to just beat the face of anything that's in front of them. Yes. <laughs> much to the frustration of other fo- forces that they're fighting with, and much to their detriment. They lose, they lose forces right and left because of it, because they really don't care. I think I was listening to a story wherein the world eaters are assaulting an imperial fist bastion and they can't get through the front door so they just keep charging until enough of them have died that there's a ramp of bodies that they just (laughs) run up and into the fortress there's more killing inside we gotta get in there somehow (laughs) i think it's cool to be playing a game for a while reading a story for a while and you know you you see the model in on the gw site or you see it in a story like oh it's a cool model and then you find you find that you find the story and it kind of pulls you in a bit, you know. Especially in the in this novel, Betrayer by Aaron Dembski Bowden, it does show. It shows a very different side of Karn. Mm-hmm. It shows his friendship with Argel Tall, which is another really interesting character from the uh, from the Word Bearers. It shows both of them, kind of questioning what's going on, kind of questioning their role in things. Less so Argel Tall because he's driven by this faith in the, in the Eightfold Path, as it were. Um, but you can see in Karn, there's a lot of... He's conflicted about where things are going. He's conflicted about his role. The entire Legion is conflicted about Angron. And the entire Legion is conflicted about Angron in how detrimental the Butcher's Nails have become to him. Where he can't really function as a leader. He can't really function as a tactician. He can't really function as a any kind of figurehead for this force. He's kind of like, you know, like the weird old the weird old dad who just kind of comes storming into the kitchen like i don't know just, just raging it, about yeah 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 yeah. He's, he's just like this this raging crazy dude who just you can't have a normal conversation with you can't look to for leadership you can't do anything it's becoming more it's becoming more and more difficult over the course of that book and in subsequent years to to view angron as a leader to mm-hmm. view him as a as a as a benefit to his legion i'm sure this was a uh inspiration for joss whedon when he came up with the reaver uh, characters from his uh, Firefly universe, uh, because that the, there's the one episode where the uh, called Bushwhacked in Firefly, where they find this one poor guy who's on this drifting ship, and he goes crazy throughout the episode. And I won't give too much away, but they kind of figure out that when the Reavers, who are this very much world eaters like people, attacked his ship, they left him alive, but made him watch 
And that's how, like, they turned him into this, like, savage like they are. And in the same way, like, this perfectly legitimate Warhounds space marine chapter who yeah has kind of this unsavory task like they're there in case one of the other space marine chapters goes woolly and they have to go put him down uh it's not until angron is introduced and starts making them put the nails in their heads that you know you get this fundamental shift into these brutal savages who lack any of the artistry any of the character of the other space marine chapters and so it's really interesting that karn is like this one person who maintains who he is through you know kind of a a testament to his own character and 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 strength of spirit and whatnot great way to put it his character and strength of spirit really does shine in this novel and in subsequent stories because he's the one who can still think in spite of the in lieu of the presence of the butcher's nails Mm -hmm. which is pretty wild great character great character Hope you all enjoyed that. That's Karn, the Betrayer. We'll take a break and be back. That was episode six of Crew Shaken. You'll have to excuse the background noise. It was a little warm in the basement tonight, so I left the fan on. Hope it wasn't too distracting throughout. I enjoyed our conversation. We covered the movement and some new deployment scenarios that are present in 8th edition Warhammer 40,000 talked about some hobby stuff we talked about karn the betrayer the champion of corn which is a lot of fun next episode we'll start a look back at some of the earlier editions of warhammer 40,000 to see how far we've come and how we got to where we are today by taking a look at both the gaming meta and the evolution of the narrative looking forward to that that should be a lot of fun over the next two or three episodes if you like what you hear leave us a review on itunes or wherever you downloaded this podcast and join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash crew shaken. For Crew Shaken, I've been Tim. And I've been Ian. Thank you for listening. <laughs>